News, notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 26th. It's show number 37 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. Of course, we'll talk with Todd Zola, our Talk with Todd commentator, about news from the Fantasy Sports Trade Association meeting, no-hitters and near-perfect games, and much more. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at changes in the Miami rotation, Cameron Mabin, and more. And from the American League with Jock Thompson, looking at upheavals in Boston, a closer committee in Toronto, and more. In our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at Boston Southpaw Wade Miley in Tampa to take on the Rays and righty Matt Andres, and Cincinnati righty Michael Lorenzen in tough at the Mets, facing ace right-hander Matt Harvey. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about alternatives to that wins category. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? No hitters and near-perfect games abounding. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be here, as always, Patrick. We've got some big changes coming up down in Miami in their pitching rotation. They have not one, not two, but three injured starters, including Jose Fernandez, getting ready to come back from the DL. Greg Pyron looked into all of this with its moving parts in his National League East coverage in playing time tomorrow. Uh, what's going on with the Miami rotation? Yeah, in fact, you know, you're going to see a lot of changes happening in Miami over the next couple of weeks. Jared Cozart was actually activated from the DL back into the uh, into Miami as a relief pitcher and will initially pitch out of the bullpen, although certainly could go back in the rotation very quickly if he proves to be uh, to be effective out of the pen. Uh, did not pitch last night. Did not pitch on Thursday night, but was activated Thursday. Uh, Jose Fernandez due back on July the 2nd. Henderson Alvarez due back uh, probably by the All-Star break. So three Three former starters all headed back to the Miami team, and, and several of them, a couple of them at least, and maybe all three back to the rotation. Uh, that means current guys are going to get bumped. So Tom Kohler, David Phelps, Jose Urena, Justin Nicolino, all had their jobs on the line over the next couple of weeks. So as you said, a whole lot of moving parts likely to happen in Miami. I'm sure we can assume that Jose Fernandez will take his regular turn as soon as they uh, clear him from the DL, but the question remains for fantasy owners, Nick. If you had Jose Fernandez on your reserve roster or on your DL, would you start him the first time out? You know, it's, that's always an interesting question when you've got someone coming back uh, back from the DL. You just don't know how, how rusty they are. And, and we've seen, if you, if you think about it, I've seen over the years things that uh, – uh, that that uh, surprised me. You'll see a guy in a uh, in a rehab start, for example, go 0 for 25, and you think, well, I'm going to put him on my bench for a while. And he comes back in his first game, hits two home runs. So you you never can tell because the rehab starts are just that, and guys are just getting the rust out. Uh, yeah, I think I would start Jose Fernandez. You, you got to watch and see what he does. Uh, had a rehab start on uh, on June the 27th, and that might be a key because that would be his last rehab start. 
But I would kind of watch and see what he does, I think, in those rehab starts. But I'd be tempted to start him. The skills are certainly there, uh, and he's likely to do something good for you. For me, as a fantasy owner, I think the situation is largely the same as it would be for a major league team, and that is you look at your other pitchers and you say, if I don't start Jose Fernandez, who am I going to start? And at that point, you think to yourself, well, if the alternative is David Price, then yeah, Jose Fernandez can sit. But if the alternative is Chris Tillman or you know somebody of that ilk, then you say, to hell with it. I'll, I'll roll the dice on Jose Fernandez because at his worst, he's probably at least as good as, as what he's replacing. And as I said, go with the skills. The skills we know are there. If the skills are better than, than who somebody he'd be replacing, I'd go with it. Kind of a shame for Justin Nicolino, though, isn't it, uh, Nick? Uh, he just came up. Looked like he might be a, a decent get for uh, fantasy owners, and all of a sudden his rotation spot clearly at risk. You know, Justin Nicolino is, is has got has got some time, and he'll and he'll be back even if he winds up getting sent back to the minors or just back to the pen. He'll be back in that rotation eventually, so he'll get his turn. But right now, the guys who've who've uh, had the experience certainly are the ones who are going to wind up on the front line. Over in Milwaukee, Stephen Nickrand, one of our favorite columnists at BaseballHQ.com, was looking at starting pitchers, and uh, Mike Fires of the of the Brewers uh, came up in Stephen's column as a buy-low target uh, despite a fairly rough start. He's got a 450 ERA and a 155 whip. We've been looking at Mike Fires for years and waiting for some kind of breakout, and through 74 innings, he's not doing so well. Why is Stephen so uh, interested in uh, Mike Fires as a buy-low? Well, you know, Mike Fires had that had a look really good at the end of last year, and and we warned in the uh, in the forecaster that uh, likely looking at, at some kind of regression for Mike Fires this year, and and we've seen that, but a lot of it it's not entirely his fault. I mean, if you look at what we're we're looking at a thirty seven percent hit rate, uh, so that certainly has uh, has caused all kinds of problems for him. And the reason that that Stephen is looking at him with a uh, with a, as a buy low target is. Stephen was looking at skills with, uh, with bases empty and men on base, and and Fires is is producing good skills in all of those situations. 143 BPV with the bases empty, 134 BPV with runners in scoring position. So it doesn't seem to matter how much pressure he's got; he's pitching very well. So uh, a lot of bad luck, I think, going on right now with Mike Fires, but certainly someone who's worth a target. Uh, if, uh, if someone, uh, we're projected a, uh, ERA of 3.62 the rest of the way, if that's appealing, then Mike Fires is a guy you might want to look at. At a glance, when you look through his skills, there's just nothing there that suggests this is as bad a pitcher as he's turning out to be. A slightly elevated uh, home run rate this year, just over one home run per nine innings on an 11% home run per fly ball rate, but he doesn't give up that many fly balls. He is giving up slightly more than normal line drives and uh, slightly fewer ground balls than you'd really like at 38%. A real balanced kind of outmaker. It's just peculiar, isn't it, that that uh, this hit rate is so high and his, his expected ERA at under four is offset by a little bit by an elevated strand rate. So what a mixed bag Mike Fires is. It does look like the kind of thing that you want to gamble on. Yeah, very definitely. And certainly in a lot of leagues, he's, he, he would be available. Uh, guys bought him. Uh, one of those things where in auctions, you probably probably overpaid for Mike Fires based on what he did last year. And those kind of guys can tend to get dropped very quickly because you you feel like you kind of wasted your money on the dude, you know, and you're yeah. ready to go after somebody else. So he may be sitting on the waiver wire in a lot of leagues. 
certainly worth checking when we uh, look at his projected balance of the year stats. We're looking for five more wins. Not that great, but it's a bad team. But 98 strikeouts to come, which could help in that category. A 367 ERA, uh, slightly elevated whip at 134 is not going to be that big of a help. But certainly, again, look at who you have in your current pitching rotation and ask yourself, could Mike Fires be a, a, an improvement? And chances are, in a lot of situations, he can. Uh, staying in Milwaukee, Will Smith is currently a relief pitcher, and some people have been talking about him as a possible replacement for Francisco Rodriguez, should Rodriguez get traded, as everybody seems to think is going to happen. But in the Market Pulse column, Matt Cedarholm at BaseballHQ.com says Will Smith might be worth uh, a gamble because he could be a starter. Will Smith came up through the minors as a starter, and at this point he's pitching extremely well at 12 12- 12 strikeouts per nine innings, uh, only walking three guys per nine innings, 1.33 ERA, 0.93 whip, 159 BPB. All the numbers are there. Will Smith is doing everything he needs to do. The only problem we, you would, might have with him being a uh, replacing Rodriguez is that he's a left-handed pitcher. And so there might be some hesitation for them to go that direction. Uh, you never know how managers are going to look at that. But uh, there's also a possibility Will Smith could wind up back in the rotation. Uh, and certainly that's sort of appealing because, he, as we said, he came up through the minors as a starter, so uh, he could get another rotation shot. Will Smith is just the kind of guy who's showing exceptional skills, elite skills, and the kind of guy you might want to gamble on to see what his role is going to be for the remainder of the season. I like Will Smith as a speculative grab for three reasons, and in fact, I did grab him for my Tout Wars team. And the first two reasons are he could be the closer, as we said. He could get into the rotation, as we said. And in the meantime, he's not doing anything but helping your your decimals by staying in his current role with that uh, 090 whip and a 135 ERA. Every inning he gets out there is a good inning for the overall in your uh, fantasy situation. Yeah, very definitely. So I, you know, I, I agree with you. He's not going to hurt you at all in any way, and certainly the possibility of an expanded role as the season progresses uh, could mean that he would provide a a ton of positive value. Do you not worry, though, that when a guy moves from the bullpen back into the rotation that you have to kind of reset his skills? We, We know that relievers can go all out for three or four outs that they usually pitch every other day or every third day, which means they don't have to rely on their third and fourth pitches like a starter does. They don't have to pace themselves like a starter does. And we look at, uh, we look at Will Smith with this 12 strikeouts per nine dominance rating. We think, ooh, boy, I'd like to see that over another 90 or 100 innings. But the fact is, if he pitches 90 or 100 innings, it's pretty unlikely that that dom rate is going to stay that high. Yeah, certainly, surely that's true. I mean, he's not going to be able to throw that hard for five or six innings. So uh, there is going to be a change in that dom rate. And, and, and so certainly he's not going to take the current skills into the rotation but certainly enough upside that it'd be interesting to see what he does do in the rotation. So far this year as well, he hasn't given up a single home run, and uh, that Miller Park is a little bit more amenable to home runs than that, so there might be a bit of home run risk associated with increased innings as a starter as well. If you're keeping score at home, Doug Dennis, our bullpens columnist, also expects Francisco Rodriguez to be dealt, but he says the man to target is James Jeffress, so uh, it could be that Will Smith is not uh, as likely a future closer as we think. And finally, Nick, the speculator column is now a three-man rotation, as Ray Murphy told us Tuesday in Baseball HQ Radio. Brent Hershey is doing some columns, and our American League beat reporter Jock Thompson is doing some. And Jock recently wrote in his speculator column about 31-day surgers that we should be looking at, including Atlanta outfielder Cameron Mabin. Cameron Mabin is having, for him, a really outstanding season. 
And when you look at what's going on there overall, Cameron Maven is, has seemed to really have clicked with uh, with new Braves hitting coach Kevin Seitzer uh, and is getting comfortable with a new approach at the plate. They, they made some changes in his swing, trying to keep his arms in close to his body so he, he can swing through more quickly. Uh, focused him on hitting the ball up the middle or the other way instead of pulling the ball quite so much. So some real changes going on at the at the hitting coach level for Cameron Mabin, and they seem to be making a difference. At this point, he's got a 288 batting average. Certainly, that's nothing to sneeze at, a 268 XBA. So that's going very well. He's The speed that we know that Cameron Mabin has is still showing up. He's running very often, been caught just three times in 16 attempts so far. And uh, entering play on June 23rd, only nine players had more stolen bases in Major League Baseball than, than Cameron Mabin. So... Uh, certainly a guy to look at, and, and there's certainly we, we, every reason for us to think that he'll continue with the kind of skills he displayed so far and put up a, a decent batting average to go along with that speed. It's an interesting thing when they change batting coaches or pitching coaches or when a player moves to a new team that has a different batting coach or pitching coach, obviously. Kevin Seitzer uh, up here in Canada was pretty well regarded for his work with the Blue Jays over the last few years before he moved down to Atlanta. What I like about the the big change that jumps out at me when I look at Cameron Mabin is uh, for the last five or six years, his walk rate has been around 7 or 8%. This year, it's up around 11%. It doesn't sound like much, but if you think about it, it's a 50% increase in the number of walks he's taking, which means to me that he's being more selective at the plate, which means he's picking pitches uh, better and he's getting pitches he can hit. Now, his, his hit rate is also elevated. There may be an element of luck to that, but maybe he's just hitting the ball better, although his hard contact index is not uh, it's well below league average. But... His, uh, his, his average fly ball and home run distance are up, uh, and that's certainly a good thing, certainly a small sample in that regard, but that's certainly a positive thing. And as you said, taking more walks for a guy with speed, that's always a good thing because he's on base more often. Yeah, his on-base percentage in a league like that, 361 this year after scuffling around below 300 the last couple of years and barely over it uh, in 2012. So, yeah, Cameron Mabin looks like a good guy to target, although I bet the price has gone up from years past. Given the year he's having, he's around a $25, $26 player so far. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for filling us in. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at the Baseball HQ Radio Podcast. Now let's turn over to the American League. And here's BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, and now Speculator columnist, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. How are you liking the speculator? Um, it's been interesting, uh, PD. It's, it's, what's fun is the research because there's always names that I didn't expect popping out, um, particularly when I'm looking at small samples on how they're doing and then going back into their history to see what it's been. Is this a real thing or is it, uh, you know, like we say, fluky? So it's, it's been fun. And in just a few minutes, we're going to be asking you to speculate at least a little bit on a new pitcher down there in your neck of the woods with the Angels. But let's start in Boston because there's been really a lot of upheaval in that Boston roster. Uh, we'll go through quite a few moves, but uh, first of all, Dustin Pedroia goes on to the DL with a strained hamstring. Jock, I was watching the game on TV, and I have to say it looked pretty bad. So let's start by saying uh, who gets Pedroia's at-bats? Well, right now, it looks like it's going to be Brock Holt, who's, who's an interesting guy, because if you remember his first half last year, uh, he was he hit over 300. It was hit rate fueled. Uh, he makes decent contact, um, uh, you know, nothing, not a lot of power. Um, 
And he's doing the same thing this year. Uh, he's walking a little more. He's got a 12% uh, walk rate. Um, it, that hit rate's going to come down. I mean, it's, again, just like last year, I think he had a 39% hit rate uh, uh, batting average on balls in play in the first half. This year, it's 38%. It's going to come down, but uh, he's a versatile player position-wise, and when he gets hot, you have to ride him. He's going to play. We've done some research at BaseballHQ.com about hit rates, and of course for a guy like Brock Holt, there's, it's still a relatively small sample insofar as hit rate is concerned, but he had a 34%, was it 34% last year? Uh, 35% last year hit rate, and he's around 38% this year. And what we've learned is that pitch, that hitters tend to set their own hit rates and and stay fa fairly narrowly around them. I don't think that if anybody's expecting Brock Holt's hit rate to fall a lot, they might be surprised. I can see it dropping a point or two, but he's pretty fast. He makes pretty decent contact and slaps the ball around. I wouldn't be surprised to see him sustain a 35 or 36% hit rate with the batting average advantage that entails. Well, I think you have to look at his first and second half splits last year. I think they might be a little instructive. He was at 39% in the first half. He did fall down to 32%. And remember, this is a guy without a lot of power, so he doesn't make terrific hard contact. I think he's going to fall a little bit more than that, but let's see what happens. He's got a 103 hard contact index this year, which means he's slightly above average for hitting the ball hard and a 29% line drive rate. Uh, I'm not saying he's going to keep hitting uh, you know, 297 or be flirting around 300, but I wouldn't be surprised if he does stay at that level, and I certainly wouldn't be expecting a huge collapse. Uh, Brock Holt also has some opportunities to play elsewhere in the uh, Boston lineup, as we'll talk about. Mookie Betts last year, Jock, played second base 14 times and, in fact, was a second baseman uh, in the minor leagues. It really bumped his fantasy value to be able to add that to his repertoire. He doesn't qualify at second base this year on a 14-game basis last year, but is there any chance that while Pedroia is out that Mookie Betts gets any second base playing time? Well, that's a good question. I hope it does happen. Um, honestly, I mean, gun to my head, I can't see it. They're still trying to get Betts uh, acclimated to center field. They still like Pedroia, obviously. They have him signed to a long-term contract uh, at second base. They haven't played Betts at all there this year, so I'm going to bet against, but uh, hope it happens. And, of course, the likelihood that bets will be needed out in the uh, outfield has increased because the, the Sox also demoted outfielder Resny Castillo. Uh, Matt Dodge covered this story in playing time today. So who benefits from the, Ca the Castillo departure other than the Red Sox? Well, obviously, Castillo wasn't doing much of anything. He was hitting 230 uh, in about 70, 80 at-bats. He wasn't showing any plate skills. He didn't have any power or speed. Um, Alejandro Diaz, who was recently acquired from waivers on Baltimore, is likely to see a bunch of near-term at-bats, but as Chris Olson noted, he's not any kind of a permanent or long-term solution. He's making better contact since coming over to Boston. He's hitting about 271 over 48 bats in June, and, and he has good speed, so he'll get some time. Shane Victorino is about to go on his latest rehab. Um, obviously, Holt could play a little bit of outfield, potentially, depending on how long it is. So they have at least some passable interim options while Castillo tries to get his act together in Pawtucket. It's interesting that you put it that way, Jock. What do you mean Castillo tries to get his act together? Is this uh, an attitude thing? Probably bad terminology on my part. Uh, I have no idea whether it's an attitude thing at, at all, but uh, obviously if you look at his plate skills and his power metrics and, and even his speed, he just wasn't giving the Red Sox uh, anything. At the same time, they've also demoted Joe Kelly, a guy throw the ball right through a, a barn door, but he has a little trouble figuring out where it's going at times. 
who replaces Joe Kelly now that he'll be uh, cooling his heels in Pawtucket as well? Justin Masterson has just come off the DL uh, uh, about a day or two earlier before Kelly's demotion. He's going to take his spot in the rotation for now. But if you look at his 637 ERA and 1.67 whip, it, it makes him pretty uninteresting for fantasy purposes. And if he keeps pitching like he was, Masterson just can't last in this rotation for long. I, I can't help wondering if Boston isn't almost ready to give Pawtucket prospect Brian Johnson a shot. Johnson is still killing it in Pawtucket. He's got a 2.57 ERA, 1.07 whip through 81 innings. He's got a 3 to 1 walk ratio. He's very pitchable. He's got to be coming up soon, I would think. And what about Henry Owens? We keep hearing about Henry Owens as a possibility in the rotation as well. You know, I haven't checked Owens' uh, numbers over the past two weeks, but he's really scuffling. Actually, I, I saw that he had another start the other night. It was typical for Owens. He was giving up a lot of walks. He gave up three runs in six innings. Um, I don't think he's anywhere near ready for a Red Sox promotion. Toronto bumped Brett Cecil out of the closer role for the second time this season. He had a stretch of really terrible outings. He blew a save, and he's looked really shabby. Uh, Manager John Gibbons has announced a closer by committee. Now, we know managers say that, but they always want to have that set closer, as dumb as it is to want to do that instead of matching up. But Matt Dodge covered the story in playing time today. So who are the best bets to be getting save opportunities and closing games for the Toronto Blue Jays? Well, just briefly, um, after two years of being pretty solid, I was a little surprised at how ineffective Cecil has been this year. And and part of it has to do with luck. And he's not getting any of that. He's got a 5.7 ERA and a 3.33 X ERA. He's still handling... uh, right-handed batters, but lefties are killing him, and so is a 63% uh, strand rate. But for now, uh, Roberto Asuna seems to have the best shot with Steve Delabar's the fallback. And of course, there are, there are plenty of rumors about Toronto trading for a closer as long as they remain in, uh, in postseason contention. I snabbed uh, Roberto Asuna a week or so ago ahead of time based on BaseballHQ.com analysis, so I hope he gets a chance, and I I think he has the skill to run with it. He had a save the other night. Baseball HQ still has Cecil projected for half the Jays' remaining saves. Then they have Osuna, they have Aaron Loop, they have Delabar, as you mentioned, even Liam Hendricks, if you can believe it, getting in on the saves action in Toronto. Moving on to Minnesota, the Twins have finally called up prospect Alex Myers. He's a pitcher. Mike Shears covered this in playing time today. What's the outlook for Alex Myers in Minnesota? Yeah, this is an interesting story we've been following now for a couple of years because that's how long Myers has been in AAA. He's, he's already 25. Um, we've been tracking and we even got to watch him in the Arizona Fall League uh, uh, during our first pitch Arizona seminar in early November uh, a year or two ago. Um, he's got a tremendous repertoire, uh, four-seam sinker, knuckle curve, uh, 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 he's been plagued by health issues. He has control problems that come and go seemingly every other start for the last two years. And, and finally at AAA, they stuck him in the pen. He's given up one run in his last 17 innings coming out of the pen with a, a 20 to 6 uh, strikeout to walk uh, ratio. Now he's going to be used as a reliever in his call-up, but reportedly Minnesota still thinks he has a future in the rotation. And so it sounds like his roles are going to vary and that he'll see some long relief to stay stretched out as well as some short high leverage relief. It's going to be interesting to see where he goes from here. And I think it was last week we talked about Minnesota. Byron Buxton got called up. Everybody was excited. He goes practically straight to the DL, which has been a problem for him with another hand injury, a thumb this time, I think. Byron Buxton, um, uh, his owners, which you and I are part of, have got to be a little frustrated. Uh, He was injured most of the year last year. 
The Twins are kind of uh, caught in between in center fields because you have Aaron Hicks on the DL. They just released Jordan Schaefer. And right now, Shane Robinson is probably going to get some playing time until uh, till, till Hicks get, gets back. You might see Eddie Rosario move over from a corner in the center field to get some time. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how they handle that. And uh, we should say Shane Robinson, maybe in a very deep AL-only league, is, is a gettable guy, but I don't think he's got much potential for mixed leagues. No, I would agree. He's been a sub all his life, and he's not going to help you very much and his playing time is always going to be uh, questionable going forward. In Texas, Adrian Beltre is back from his thumb injury, and yet they still have Joey Gallo on the roster. Rod Trusdell covered this in playing time today, and you touched it as well, Jock, if I'm not mistaken, in playing time tomorrow. Beltre plays third base, obviously, uh, so that means Gallo's got to go find some place, presumably the outfield, or uh, what do you think? Who loses the at-bats here? The guys that really lose out of the part-timers like Ryan Ruin, currently DL'd uh, Ryan, uh, Kyle Banks, um, they're, they're playing time unless there's a, another injury, of course, it's going to dry up. Um, it's interesting, Gallo has played left field in all three games that uh, Beltre's been back, um, but there's a log jam forming because you've got uh, um, Josh Hamilton, who's just begun a AAA rehab, um, Delano Shields, he's going he's gonna to start his rehab shortly after Hamilton. Um, that's a pretty decent left-right platoon here. There, so the real question is, what happens to Gallo when those two get back, and who's going to get the left field at bats? Because I don't think anyone's going to replace Beltre. Oh no, for sure. But is there a possibility that maybe they platoon Hamilton into Shields and let Gallo DH most of the time? Maybe take an outfield appearance at Hamilton's expense and let Hamilton DH some of the time, so you get Hamilton into Shields splitting and Gallo getting full time at bats. Is that a possibility? Yeah, it's possible that uh, Gallo could get some of his at-bats at DH and, and become a part-time player, but uh, you have to wonder whether Texas wants him on, uh, you know, coming off the bench and playing and getting maybe three, four starts a week. Plus, Keith Moreland has, uh, I'm sorry, Mitch Moreland, I always do that. Mitch no, Moreland has uh, uh, had a really good year at DH, uh, alternating between DH and first base with Prince Fielder. And I'm not sure the, uh, the Rangers want to break that up. So Gallo could get sent down uh, to the minor leagues, maybe even? It's very possible. It's going to be interesting to see. That could break several ways. And as we both know, sometimes these things just take care of themselves. And finally, Jock, down there in Anaheim, starting pitcher prospect Andrew Heaney finally made his Angels debut. I know you covered it in your Playing Time Today column, so uh, tell us about Andrew Heaney and how long he can expect to remain in the rotation. Well, I was a little surprised at this move, and we'll talk about that. But Heaney hadn't pitched very well in June in AAA, but... uh, Salt Lake City and the Pacific Coast League are pretty tough environments to pitch in, and, and despite an ERA in the high fours, Heaney still had a three-to-one strikeout-to-walk ratio. He was still generating ground balls, and he'd only given up uh, two home runs in 78 innings. So that's kind of more a better indication of his skill set. Uh, everyone thought we wouldn't see Jared Weaver's designated, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, disabled list replacement for. Uh, uh, about 10 days because the Angels didn't need a fifth starter till then. They called Heaney up either the night before or, or the day of because they didn't want homer-prone Matt Shoemaker uh, starting against the Astros. They didn't announce it until a couple of hours before the game. They pushed Shoemaker's start uh, back to Friday against the more anemic uh, uh, Seattle Mariners. So he wouldn't have to face the Astros, and they stuck Heaney in there instead. And in addition to writing about it at BaseballHQ.com, Jock, you actually went to the game. So give us the eyewitness news from your perspective. How did Heaney look out there? Yeah, it was a, it was a really fun game for a lot of reasons, and Heaney was terrific. Uh, a lot of composure, uh, good demeanor, allowed four hits, one walk, five strikeouts, and six innings. 
didn't ever seem to be any trouble, and, and there wasn't a lot of hard contact uh, against him. I was pretty impressed. Obviously, if Heaney throws together a couple more starts like this, it's going to force the Angels to make some tough decisions, especially after Weaver comes back. So what do you think this means in the short term for the Angels? Yeah, and he's going to get those starts while Weaver's on the shelf. Uh, obviously, he has good long-term potential. Um, it, it's an interesting situation. Both Weaver and Shoemaker has been poor, but Weaver has a lot of rope with the club just due to who he is. He's a hometown boy. They love him here. His prior years have been great. He has that current contract. Shoemaker might be the candidate uh, most likely to lead the rotation, uh, perhaps b- because it's his turn to take a timeout, like Weaver, if he if he can't control the home run ball. And a trade is always an option. The rumor here is that C.J. Wilson is being dangled. The Angels need offense. So this is one of those watch-carefully situations. There's plenty of ways it could play out. I have to ask, Jock, who in the hell would want C.J. Wilson? Well, C.J. Wilson has kept his ERA under four. His, uh, his metrics have been pretty good, uh, and the Angels have obviously shown with Josh Hamilton they're willing to eat uh, a lot of contract and there are teams that need pitching out there. Boy they'd have to need it pretty bad uh, and the Angels definitely do need a, maybe a bit of a offensive injection it just it would surprise me if they get much of it from CJ Wilson but I guess we'll uh, have to wait and see. Jock thanks very much for filling us in and you're doing a great job of speculator keep that up. Okay PD thanks a lot. Jock Thompson is director of news and analysis at baseballhq.com and as we said now also a member of the rotation doing the speculator column at the site. When we come back, our regular Friday talk with Todd, it's Todd Zola, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio wants to hear from you, so we've set up a new email address dedicated to Baseball HQ Radio podcast listeners. Send your email to bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Give us your ideas about new features on the podcast or how we can improve the existing features. Ask a question for one of our expert guests, our regular beat reporters, or our commentators. And if you can record your question as an MP3 or Og Vorbis audio file and send it to us as an attachment, we'll put it in the show. And let us know what guests you'd like to hear on Baseball HQ Radio. In short, anything you'd like us to know that would help you enjoy Baseball HQ Radio more, you can let us know by emailing us at bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. That's bhqradio at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Baseball HQ is working 24-7 to give you everything you need to succeed. Like Brian Rudd's Facts and Flukes column, looking at Matt Harvey, Mark Melanson, Will Venable, and others. Our daily call-ups report looks at the Twins' Alex Meyer, the Red Sox shortstop prospect Devin Marrero, the Angels' Andrew Heaney, and many more. And in the GM's office, Brent Hershey discusses draft day. BaseballHQ.com updates its content every day across a wide range of great information like our Buyer's Guide Skills Assessment Columns, Performance Validation in Facts and Flukes, Roster Changes in Playing Time Today and Tomorrow, Daily Matchups, Team Coverage, Minor League Scouting, and more. And we also have great tools like our projections and other roster management systems that you can use to help you dominate your league or the daily fantasy game. And it's only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd. And it's a pleasure to be joined once again by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and others. Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Good to have you. 
Really good to be here, Patrick. And it's great to have you. Uh, I understand you were uh, down in New York uh, on uh, earlier in this week, and you were at the uh, FSTA meetings. Uh, first of all, what's the uh, information you got at the meetings about uh, participation in the game that we love to play? Yeah, it's very, uh, very interesting. They uh, open the panel each year with a survey that they take, and they've been taking it for years, and they just, how many people are playing, and the demographics, and a lot, all that sort of thing. And I think we're up to around 57 million people participate in one form of fantasy sports or another. Now, it's not just baseball, but they're up to around 57 million people participate in some form of fantasy sports. Was, uh, that's a pretty big number. It is a big number, and uh, it's an interesting number. Did they break it out into football, baseball? Of course, a lot of people play both, but did you get an idea of the proportions? They did. I don't have it with me. They, they do. There's a report that uh, once they send out the reports, we can, we can talk about that again. But, yeah, I just, I, I just kind of jotted down the general numbers. Um, we will be getting a – they do send us all the presentations on PowerPoint, that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, it was um, you know up from around 30 million was the last number, and it's just uh, I don't it wasn't last year 30 million, but that last time I remember at least seeing that particular panel. So it's uh, at least sometime in the past five years it's doubled, which is pretty insane. I'm going to guess, uh, and you can tell me I'm wrong, but I, I suspect that fantasy football is probably. 50% or more of that number and that baseball would be second and then you know basketball hockey golf NASCAR all these kind of things kind of uh, marginal at the bottom absolutely uh, fantasy football rules um, it, it drives it drives the industry it's the easiest to monetize and you know baseball we you know we try to dovetail along with it as best we can and we are a decent standalone entity at this point we could survive without any other help but sure uh not 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 a not upset at all that fantasy football is as popular as it is uh, you know people the whole jealousy sort of thing i don't care if uh if football being popular helps me be able to do what i do i'm all for it and indeed uh, there's an argument or a narrative that says that fantasy football in its way brings people into fantasy baseball because when the football season's over the baseball season is kind of not exactly ramping up but the super bowls in early february pitchers and catchers in mid february there's a there's a follow on aspect to it that maybe some of these baseball uh, some of these football guys uh, start jonesing for their uh, fantasy action and they look around and say hey this is a sport I think I understand, and, and I don't know how true that narrative is, but it feels right to me. And, of course, daily games in baseball have probably encouraged that transition from football to baseball, don't you think? Yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah, especially when you've got a little bit money in your account of these daily games and you get the itch for the action, so you'll, you'll play whatever's out there. There is a little bit about that, and I also think that the – the scoring in the daily, it being points-based and not rotisserie-based like we talk about, helps the participation uh, as, as well. Um, I think, you know, we we're trying to, fantasy baseball has f for a long time tried to figure out ways to attract the football audience, to make it more simplistic with the mixed leagues and in drafts as opposed to auctions and, and, so, and making some leagues head-to-head -head and some of these other things. It's, uh, you know, on one hand, I don't want to call it dumbing down of the game. Uh, I want to continue to play at the level that, that we talk about and that we play about. But, you know, as someone who's trying to make a living in the industry, 
any growth to me is good growth. So I'm not again. I'm not you know. I'm not gonna poo poo these ten team mixed draft leagues that use point scoring, et cetera, in the baseball, because the more people drawn into the uh, to the game, you know, we can then teach them and and have them grow into some of these you know twelve teams AL only auction or something. But uh, you know, I do not that I'm not by saying that I'm not implying that other people do have this sort of feeling. I think people expect us to <laughs> talking to people, but we we don't. We we realize the uh, we need this sort of thing to survive. Yeah, and, and it seems actually a good thing in that uh, if you come into fantasy baseball via the fantasy football route, and you and you want to start off in a fairly simple format, as you say, points versus rotisserie categories and so forth. If you're good at it. And if you find that you like it, it's a logical next step to move on to something that's a little more complicated, that is rotisserie type scoring or, or other variants. And if you're good at that, you know, you get more involved in the game. And if you're not, then you stay with the points and that's okay too. As long as you're playing and enjoying yourself, who are anybody else to say you're doing it wrong? Yeah, what I think it's kind of interesting is, again, I don't want to use the word dumbed down because that has wrong implications, but... The fantasy game, I don't want to say devolved, but it it started out in the most difficult format, the 12-team single-league auctions, right. and has sort of, you know, had rules with reserve lists and, and fab and daily moves and et cetera to make it more attractive to more people to play. Football has actually sort of been doing the opposite. They started out with the more simplistic rules where it used to be only touchdowns. It used to be just touchdown count as points. So they're going the opposite direction. They're making their rules uh, harder. They're introducing auctions into football and, and difficult, more difficult scoring and, and flex positions and, and that sort of thing. So the two games kind of, they started at the extremes and I think they're sort of trying to meet in the middle to find a commonality so that people can cross over easier between the two. You know, uh, being Canadian, my first exposure to fantasy sports of any kind was hockey pools. We used to just call them, do you want to play in a hockey pool? And the way it worked was I, it was just scoring points. The goalies weren't even included, and you just had a straight draft of however many guys you agreed would be drafted. And uh, in the first leagues I played in, you couldn't even you couldn't even change your roster during the year. Whatever you drafted on uh, just before the season started in September, well, that was your roster for the whole year. And if four of your guys got hurt or eight of your guys got sent down or whatever the case might be, the tough beans for you. And all we all we did was add the goals and assists together, and that was uh, your score for the year. One category. And over time, people started realizing this isn't as much fun as I thought. It's it's way too dependent on not having injuries and not having underperformance and so forth. And so there was a kind of a logical progression of adding complexity to the game, but also giving it flexibility. The first thing was you could drop and add players. The next thing was we moved up into a rotisserie style scoring format where we scored points and assists separately and so on. And now you have hockey leagues, lots of them here in Canada that are playing on rotisserie style with six, eight, 10 categories, including goalie categories, plus minus shorthanded goals, all of these different subsets of scoring and uh, now even with the advanced metrics in hockey, that's happening too. And everybody finds a level they like, and that makes more games available to more people. Yeah, and, and the internet has a lot to do with that as well. I remember, you know, the early days of the baseball, you you, you pick out the, the magazine and you check off 10 players, you'd rip the article out of the magazine, throw it in an envelope and enter into a contest that way. The internet, has, you know, is going to continue to 
change the way we play the fantasy sports. So I think that has a lot to do, you know, not we, we were able to get more complex because of the internet. Another interesting facet from the information from FSTA is that uh, there's more women playing fantasy sports than anybody would have guessed. Yeah, um, 33% of all participants are women, which is, is, you know, again, huge. Now, I suspect that the, the males are playing multiple leagues in multiple sports, and the females, you know, maybe playing one league. So if you were to add up all the leagues, I don't think the female participation would, would be 33% of everything. But I think that, you know, the fact that if you, you know, unique, you know, unique people playing, that 33% are, are women, that's great. And you see that, or we, we saw that, especially this past meeting in New York, there's, there's a lot more females that are coming, representing companies, uh, Baseball has only a couple of of writers. Football, there's there's several there are several female fantasy football writers that I'd rather have draft my team than me uh, at this point. Uh, baseball, there's a couple that are more uh, maybe specialized. Stefania Bell with the injuries uh, sort of thing. That I, I don't know that there's a whole lot of specialists in the baseball, but I think it's coming. But sure, um, it's it's to me 33 percent. Is uh you know they probably got into the got into it because of their significant other or their husband etc. But that's a that's a big number, and uh, it's it's a really interesting development too. Um, when I started playing fantasy baseball, of course, my wife was after I got married, my wife was not that keen on this a very intense hobby and avocation that I was carrying. But over time, she's got more interested in how the game works. She's more interested in my team. She knows who my players are. She can, I'll come down the stairs uh, and she'll be watching a game. She loves watching baseball and she'll say, oh, by the way, you know, Noah Syndergaard's got five no, no hit innings going because she knows Noah Syndergaard's on my team. And, and to me, anything, again, anything that attracts more people seems to be a good thing and of course we don't know what sports the women are are interested in i suspect again it's probably strongly weighted towards football because of the uh cultural position football has but any any participation is good participation as far as i'm concerned right i mean you you talk to jock every week He, he and his wife play in leagues together and you know talk about it all the time when we see him at the at the various and sundry uh events so you know they're a great example of a husband and wife team that, you know, that it's an important part of their lives. I think it's great. Um, yeah, I do think that they do play more football. I think there's, they probably also play a little bit more. There's a few, women love NASCAR, and I, I'm going to guess a lot of the people, a lot of the um, participation might be in that. And there's even things like MMA, one of the, I'm talking about the, the, the ladies that come to the conference, the the president of the, uh, there's a site that does MMA, and, and she was there. And I'm sure that she's got a pretty loyal following of, of some ladies that, that play her game. Um, it's, it's, again, even if it's not baseball, the more people in the industry is better for us. And one of the things that's driving a lot of that participation, I know, Todd, it wasn't that long ago where nobody in media, especially former players, would ever mention fantasy baseball or fantasy sports during a sportscast or especially during a game because they poo-pooed it. They thought it was dumb. They, they found it uh, ludicrous, uh, all of these kind of things. I remember years ago phoning into the uh, XM morning broadcast way back when, and Larry Boa was one of the co-hosts, and I mentioned uh, while I was making my comment 
that this had some fantasy baseball ramification. And of course, he just started just being very sarcastic and very, um, dim, 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 what's the word I'm searching for? Dismissive. He was being very sarcastic and very dismissive of my comment as a baseball fan because it was directed towards fantasy. And nowadays, I mean, ESPN mentions fantasy all the time on SportsCenter. The, the broadcasts here in Canada do the same thing. And I'm even hearing uh, the mention of fantasy uh, outcomes during game broadcasts on the radio, at least. Right. That one of the panels was about just that, and they, there was a quote from ESPN, or the ESPN guy was on the on the panel, and basically said it literally used to be one of like George Carlin's seven dirty words. There was like an eighth word, and that would be fantasy. But now they're not censored at all. Actually, censored's not the right word, but they're they're allowed to freely mention it at will, and it's become part of it. Actually, I kind of. I'll watch the broadcast at night, and and I, just, I get a kick out of Vin Scully doing the drop-ins for DraftKings. It's just you know it's you know this the the, the icon Vin Scully is, is is you know DraftKings has to deal with baseball, so I just think if you know if Vin Scully can uh, can 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 say it's okay, so why don't you know why don't more people play it? But I just get a kick out of hearing Vin do the. Uh, do the drop-in ad between innings. Yeah, I think more players are, uh, I just see more players in interviews and stuff talking about themselves being drafted, what that's like for them, and, and fans yelling at them, hey, Jim, you're on my fantasy team. And I mean, and some of them really take it in stride and have good humor about it. And that the, the presence of fantasy sports is becoming a very real and everyday fact about how we absorb and use sports to entertain ourselves and as part of our culture. So in a way, the the acceptance of the game by the fans is driving the acceptance of the game amongst the players and commentators, which is in turn driving acceptance among the fans. So in a, it seems like a virtuous cycle. Right. Now, let's let's keep this in mind as well, and that is I think the players are not so naive, or maybe it's their agents that realize that, it's also bringing more money into the game, and when more money comes into the game, their their, their contracts and their salaries go up a bit. So they're, I think that, uh, I don't know what the players might be doing. I'm sure there's some agents out there that are pulling their guy aside, and, uh, and, and not just that, but endorsements. A player who has is, is liked by the fantasy crowd is more likely to get endorsements. Uh, that sort of thing. So I, I, you know, I, you're right. You're right. The players they are being more acceptive, but I think there may be a little side agenda going on to that as well. And one of the things that the another fact that came out of the conference was that a uh, 60% of people said they're paying more attention to live games and reading articles and and they're doing more. You know, they're non-fantasy work about sports itself. They're you know, they're doing 60% say they're you know reading more articles, watching more TV, and going to more games. So that that's sort of the whole, uh, you know, get out of the basement and go see a game sort of thing that they tell tell us nerds. Well, we are, yeah. <laughs> we are because of it. So uh, I think that's a pretty big factor as well. And of course, uh, I don't know if they mentioned this at the conference, but there's another uh, another factor that seems to me to be contributing to it, and that is. For the last 15 or 20 years, we've had uh, increasing involvement by people in the uh, console-based games, uh, um, PlayStation games or the the, uh, Xbox games that are getting increasingly realistic, that people are really playing a lot. And if that's not fantasy baseball, I don't know what is, and it seems to dovetail as well. Well, that's the next iteration, and I I didn't – I'm going to cop to not being completely up on these sort of things. I'm more of a content person, and they – Sometimes when these panels, 
start to go. I may have a meeting to talk to somebody about something else. But that that the next iteration. Well, there's two things. There's there's advanced data coming into the game that will change scoring and formats, and then it's it's real time. So you'll literally have, like I said, this console in front of you, and instead of have you know instead of moving the pong ball that shows you how old I used to play these, how long ago I played these games. These same consoles, you're going to guess if it's a slider, if it's a, a, home, a home run, you're going to guess if it's a stolen base, uh, you're going to guess on the outcome, and the more the more odd, of not so much the more odd, the less probability of the outcome, you know, the more points you might get. I think he's going to steal on this play, uh, and that that's what that's coming. The technology is there. Uh, it's being developed. That's what's coming next is literally pitch to pitch, snap to snap, uh, dribble to dribble. Uh, I don't know what it would be in hockey, you know, uh, stride to stride, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you're going to get real-time uh, play. And I'm not this, not so much DFS sort of thing, but just, uh, you know, and it, it, it's you're not going to be able to, you know, use uh, batting average and balls in play to do your analysis. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be the next iteration of the entertainment aspect of of sports or the participation aspect of it and i know i read an article this was more than a year ago that in las vegas you can sit down in a booth at a bookmaker and and at a casino and you can make transactional bets while the game is underway you can bet two bucks that this batter is going to get a hit and or put two dollars on him for uh, for a good outcome and if he if he hits a home run you win ten dollars if he gets a base hit you win three dollars if he walks you get a dollar and 80 cents and so forth and if he goes out then you get you lose your bet and so forth and i think that's all present and i agree with you that it's coming and i wouldn't be at all surprised that within the next five years or less that you're going to be able to sit at your house and you're going to be able to log on to one of the fantasy draft providers and you're going to be able to bet money on the outcome of the next play or the next at bat yeah i sure hope that you know what we what we do and what we talk about normally doesn't go away and i don't think it will at least not in this generation but you know the thing technology pushes changes and that's what's going to be happening it's a you know what have you done for me lately you know mtv type world and you know i'm sure we'll still be able to you know talk about our our the game we love but we got also have to realize that other things are happening at the same time did they talk anything about the how the age splits go over when you're separating out who's playing what the average age is now 37 and it was in the 40s before uh, 54% of the players are under 35, and if you, you know, if, if people out there are thinking, well, it must be the daily, I think it has to, I think it's partially daily, but I think, you, you know, we can talk in a second, the number of people actually playing the daily, the DFS, is, I don't want to say shockingly low, but it's, I, th- I, think, you, I think we can say surprisingly low. Um, to me, this is a good thing in that the if the age is lowered and it's not simply because of daily that means there's other it's being lowered by people getting into the more traditional and seasonal fantasy which i think is a good thing but yeah the average age is 37 and it again it used to be in the 40s which uh so it takes a lot there's a lot of people playing when 50 you know 57 million people are playing it's going to take a lot more younger people to move it that many years and uh so again i think that's a pretty good thing well we mentioned it there's only a I say only, uh, approximately 17% of the people that play fantasy play exclusively daily. So that's what, one out of six? Right. So, you know, one out of six people that play fantasy 
only play daily, which means 84% in some manner, way, shape, or form continue to play the season-long traditional leagues. So DFS may get the ink. You know, we may talk about it because it's it's the, the big thing and it's where the money is, but there's still, you know, five out of every six players are are playing the regular traditional seasonal leagues. I would really like to know how many people are playing for money versus how many people are playing for the fun of it. I, I suspect that probably money enters into it, but even in cash leagues that you play in with your buddies or your college roommates and stuff like that, I suspect that there's a lot of playing because you just want to beat the next guy and the money, uh, I know in leagues I have played in, the money was only put in to cover the overhead, the stat provider and maybe the uh, trophy and, and stuff like that. There was no actual cash incentive to play at all. My American League league that I play in, that, yeah, there's a payout at the end. I think you can win 800 or or 1000 bucks. I don't even know, mostly because I haven't been anywhere near it for the last few years. <laughs> but... Uh, I think the main driving force of guys being in the league is they want to beat everybody else in the league, and they'd probably do it for nothing if, if it came to that. Well, I wrote a piece on, on Fantasy Alarm about that, in that I, 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 I love the strategy of the DFS. I, I love the analytics of the DFS. I think it's more than you know simply beating luck. I don't like the fact that it's revolving around the money. Uh, I'm not naive. I know that entertainment costs money. But, you know, you cost to play a round of golf, it costs cost to have a good dinner, you know, cost, cost to go on vacation. But the difference being in the, the entertainment in the DFS is the winning and, and not vice versa. So if there were ever a way to, you know, add up points in the, in the way we do and then at the end of the year crown a champion and it's just to be, you know, personal pride amongst your old college buddies or your work buddies, etc., you know, I think that a lot more people might, be into the DFS way of doing things, but right now being so much about the money and it, back to the fifty-six million. Oh, the, the the large majority of that are playing on you know free ESPN and free Yahoo and free CBS leagues. There's just not a whole lot of people, you know, playing for money. We talk about the NFBC, and you know, there's fifty-six million people that play fantasy. You know, they may have twenty-five hundred that play for this in the high stakes. So I mean, there's a there's a huge amount. You know, it's a blip. Yeah, it's just it's an incredible you know blip on the radar of what's actually out there playing. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt and Todd Zola, and Todd. Uh, over the last little while, we've had what two or three near perfect games. Max Scherzer threw a uh, eight and two thirds perfect innings before he uh, hit. Jose Tabata causing a bit of controversy, but did get the no hitter. Marco Estrada of the Jays back to back. Have flirted with a no-hitter against Baltimore and then flirted with a perfect game till late in the game at Tampa. Uh, first of all, of course it's an aberration, but what do you think of all these near-perfect games? Uh, yeah, well, again, it, yeah, I mean, it's it's an aberration, but there's still a whole lot of good pitching going on. And, you know, Scherzer, Scherzer's performance the past two games has just been ridiculous. I actually didn't catch Estrada's uh, near-perfect game. I was in a – I was at uh, – wasn't actually the FSGA was a little lunch meeting afterwards and I kept getting text messages and uh and and, and more actually it was t- uh, Twitter notes because I had talked about Estrada or, or one of my partners had talked about Estrada on on, a, on an article we wrote and people were like thanking me for that and it wasn't me it was my partner but that's okay but um and it was just sort of following it along online uh so I can't you know judge as to what I actually saw as far as pitching goes although I did catch the Donaldson uh, dive into the stands, of course, as, as I'm sure everybody did. But watching Scherzer, 
it, it, it's it's um you know I know that people like you know no hitters get a lot of luck in it. Well, I don't know. There's a watching his him pitch. I just think there was just a a, a couple phen- phenomenal performances, and sure, there's a little bit of luck involved. But we also learned that, that a pitcher can control weak contact and that sort of thing. And perhaps it was a cluster of said weak contact altogether. But there's a lot more luck involved. Not more. There's a lot more, you know, pitcher control involved in some of these great performances than some people might want to, you know, might want to lead us believe. Oh, no hitters, all luck. No, it's not. It was a great pitching performance and. Uh, you know, Strader as well. He's one of those up and down sort of guys, and and you knew that Toronto would eventually give him a shot. I mean, you don't trade away Adam Lean for a spare part. Not that Lean is all that, but he was he's still a pretty good player and having a good year. So they're talking about Estrada in the bullpen or whatever. So I'm kind of I'm glad to see that he, he he got his shot in the rotation and he's taking advantage of it. Estrada, over the last couple of games, uh, as as we've said, uh, just tremendous performance. He walked four guys in the uh, Baltimore game, but only gave up the one hit and an earned run, unfortunately for him. But against Tampa, it was just uh, two hits back to back. After Donaldson, if you for people who didn't see the game, everybody saw that when he went into the stands, which was a great play. The very next play was one of those swinging bunt topped balls up the third baseline, and Donaldson came in, barehanded it, and threw it to first and missed getting the out by about a half a step. It was another tremendous defensive play, and from that point of view, uh, even sadder that the, that the outcome was what it was. But the point I was going to make was Marco Estrada over the last two games has thrown 247 pitches. 118 against Baltimore, 129 in the perfect game bid at Tampa. And I think this is going to get a lot of uh, fantasy players maybe thinking they should bench him if they have him in a regular league or avoiding him in a uh, in a daily league. And I just wanted to say that the, I did Baseball HQ research a, a couple of years ago about players coming off certain uh, levels of performance uh, among pitchers and what I found was, if you've got a guy who threw two straight PQS fives, which is outstanding performances, over 120 pitches, he was almost a lock to have another great start his next time out. Right, and I think the team knows this, and I mean it's a perfect time to talk. I, mean, I think with, with Scherzer tonight, where uh, we do our a little tout daily contest, and I'm avoiding Scherzer tonight just because of the fact that he's had two nine inning complete games and. And he's playing Philadelphia, which might be attractive to some people. On the other hand, if Washington gets out to a big lead, you know, maybe they pull Scherzer after seven or after six, and he still has a PQS five because you can still get that in six innings. And, uh, you know, it doesn't help the team as much. I would play these guys, uh, if I, you know, even in a seasonal league, I would play them, um, regardless, stream them and all, all that sorts of stuff. And, uh, but in, a, in, in the daily league, especially for the price, uh, you won't be seeing Max Scherzer in my lineup tonight. And I might be a bit of a contrarian and look at him in the expectation that nobody's going to take him because of the pitch count issue. And I, I was just uh, earlier today looking at Max Scherzer's PQS chart, and every start is a 5 or a 4. Every start of the year so far, 100% dominant starts, 0% any other kind. Not just not just no zeros or ones, but no zeros, ones, twos, or threes. Max Scherzer's having uh, really a year for the ages, and of course he's going to be a top-priced pitcher, but I'm 
kind of in the back of my mind hoping people are going to avoid Max Scherzer because of the pitch count issue, and maybe he's a buying opportunity. I don't know. I, I don't do very well at these uh, at these games, tow wars or otherwise. Uh, Todd, before, <laughs> before I let you go, um, we had Jose Fernandez on our minds last week. He's coming back, and you... Uh, told people not to be too hasty on the su- on the subject because of Matt Harvey's record. Uh, Jose Fernandez, I think they said, is going to start on July the 3rd, which is coming up this coming week. And uh, I'm going to ask you, even taking into account the spotty record of guys coming back uh, their first start of the year, do you think you would start Jose Fernandez on his first game back from the DL? Unless, I haven't looked at the schedule, unless he's in Colorado, I'm playing Jose Fernandez. I'm not expecting, you know, seven innings of two-hit ball with 11 strikeouts, but he's still going to give me a decent baseline performance. Uh, so, if yeah, if I, I don't happen to have it, so it's easy for me to say. But, yes, Jose Fernandez would be on in any of my lineups, if I was, especially if I'm sitting on him this long. Um, you know, but as I did mention last week, just temper your expectations a bit. If he, if you, if you're expecting to win the second half of your league because of him, get him a little help. He's going to help you, but he's not going to do it alone, all by himself. I was looking earlier at the uh, ESPN Major League Baseball schedule. They still have Tom Kohler pitching on the third, and uh, they have Jose Fernandez starting on the second, which is a Thursday night against Jake Peavy. So the matchup's pretty favorable. <laughs> uh, it's an it's a day game uh, in Miami. So if you're looking for Jose Fernandez on a matchups basis, uh, Jake Peavy and the and the Giants could be worse. Oh, absolutely. The Giants are one of those teams that they don't. You know, they don't get shut out and they don't score 12 runs either. They, uh, you know, they, they get their hits. They're just a solid hitting team. So not the kind of team that, that, that scares me. Um, Marlins Park squashes homers. Not that that would be, you know, San Francisco doesn't hit all the whole lot of homers, but it's not so bad for offense because of the gaps and the whatnot. So yeah, that would be, that, that would be an interesting game now. Would I, would I start PV and is his first game back? Yeah. As long as, cause I think he's smart enough not to throw a, not to throw meatball to Giancarlo Stanton there, uh, but uh, so I would I would probably start both um, pitchers. It's gonna it, I'm more aggressive than most. It's gonna take a lot for me not to start a pitcher because I still believe that if you you have an expectation, in order to get that expectation, you need the pitcher to be active because once you start playing that game of trying to figure out when he's gonna do it and when he's not gonna do it, you're gonna have the bad stuff on your ledger and the good stuff on your reserve, and you don't want that. No, you don't, and it's always a bit of a crapshoot, which is what makes it fun, of course. Uh, appreciate you taking the time again this week, Todd. Uh, glad you're back safe and sound. I'll try to beat you again in uh, in uh, Tell Wars, the uh, daily Tell Wars. I don't think I've done it yet, but I'm going to keep trying. Oh, no. You, I, I Last week, or the, the Felix Hernandez week, I was beaten by the people that didn't put a lineup in. <laughs> I had Felix getting negative points and Gregory Polanco going over seven. So I'm going for the gusto tonight, and uh, we're starting a new period, scoring period next week to try to get the tickets into the big dance. So I'm going to alter up my way of approaching it. I'm, we're actually writing about it on TeltWars.com. So maybe next week we can uh, we can we can talk about that a little bit, how we're going to approach a little bit differently. 
I had uh, I had uh, King Felix in that same game. Uh, eight earned runs in a third of an inning pretty much uh, finished me, and I think I also finished behind some guys who uh, didn't put in teams. I, I actually <laughs> I actually this year because I was uh, uh, away from home and didn't get home in time to put my team in. I had one of those. They just give you a default team with the nine worst guys they can find, the lowest priced worst guys, and I actually beat two guys who put teams in, so it's possible. <laughs> Yeah, no. Uh, depending on your site, you could get negative scoring, and uh, I- including for batters, and it was just one of the nights. But I, uh, you know, I I continually fare well when the NFBC has their contest on Tuesday. So there's just something about you touts that uh, that I'm, I'm some kind of mind games you're playing with me. I'm able to hang with the high stakes people and win those contests and cash. But for whatever reason, the touts have my number. So uh, you know, hey, it's a it's a strong group of uh, of players. I'm not too surprised. So. Uh, We'll go at it again tonight. We'll see what happens. All right, Todd. Thanks a million. Talk to you next week. Okay. Thank you, Patrick. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, for ESPN, FantasyAlarm.com, uh, MastersBall.com. Wherever Todd's writing, you should be reading, and wherever Todd's talking, you should be listening, and that's why we're so glad to have him talking here. When we come back, our regular commentaries, we have the matchups report as well as Master Notes next on Baseball HQ Radio. Maggio swinging, it's a whistling line drive to left center field. It's a base hit, it's taken on the second hop by Ripple. The throw is coming in a second. Maggio is racing for it. Maggio makes it with a slide and it's saved for a double. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for a regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, I'll have master notes in just a second. And right now, our pitcher matchups report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup based on his opponent, the park, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. We recommend pitchers with matchup ratings of plus 2 and higher, while we suggest you avoid pitchers whose matchup ratings are below 0. Now looking at Boston Southpaw Wade Miley down in Tampa to take on the Rays and righty Matt Andrees and Cincinnati righty Michael Lorenzen in tough at the Mets against ace right-hander Matt Harvey, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. It's the first weekend of summer and the living is easy on the last weekend in June. So let's make your weekend starting pitcher selections a little easier with recommendations and warnings from the BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups tool. Beginning with the bad news, there are 12 negative matchup ratings this weekend, and seven, that's right, more than half, seven are in the American League alone on Saturday. There are two double negative matchups on that doomsday, and one is under the dome in Tampa's pitcher-friendly Tropicana Field. Boston's Wade Miley pits his matchup rating of minus 043 against Tampa Bay's Matt Andrees and his matchup rating of minus 142. The soft-tossing, left-handed Wade Miley may be able to outpitch Miley Cyrus, but his nickname might as well be Mediocre. His command is 2-0, based on a control of 3-0 and a dom of 6-0. His whip is 138, and his ERA is 450. And there's no luck involved. Miley's expected ERA is 441. His hit rate is 31%, and his strand rate is 68%. In 14 starts, he has six PQS dominant scores and four PQS disaster scores. Miley is costing his fantasy owners minus $2 in roto value. Right-hander Matt Andrees has had only five starts in the majors, and three have been PQS disaster zeros. 
He's projected to cost his fantasy owners minus $4 in roto value for the remainder of the season. Despite the new logo, not every young pitcher who puts on a Rays uniform is immediately all sunshine and roses. Avoid Andres and Miley. The lone negative matchup rating in the National League on Saturday belongs to another youngster, Cincinnati right-hander Michael Lorenzen with a minus 084. The Reds have the dubious distinction of both their starters earning minuses this weekend. Lorenzen's opponents are the New York Mets at pitcher-friendly City Field in New York. His base performance value is also underwater at minus 5. And it could be worse. He's actually had the good fortune of a 25% hit rate and an 81% strand rate. That combination has kept his earned run average of 356 more than a run below his expected earned run average of 483. In 57 innings of Major League work, Lorenzen has logged 35 strikeouts and 29 walks. With apologies to BaseballHQ.com's reigning Reds fan Doug Dennis, if you own Lorenzen, your best hope is the 67-93% to chance of rain predicted in New York. Lorenzen's counterpart from the Mets, Matt Harvey, is finally a pitcher you can start on Saturday. Last week, I recommended you befriend Harvey, even though he had a matchup rating of only 150. He came through with his 8th PQS 5 and 12th PQS dominant score in 14 starts. This week, he has a matchup rating of 212. Harvey's average fastball velocity is now nearly 96 miles per hour and helping him generate elite rates of 13% swinging strikes and 71% first pitch strikes. Those base performance indicators support his control of 1-4 and dominance of 9-0 for a whip of 101, an earned run average of 318, and an expected earned run average of 306. Harvey is earning his fantasy owners $18 in roto value, and that's no illusion. And it's not all bad in the American League this weekend either, as Sunday brings Cleveland's Trevor Bauer into hitter-friendly Camden Yards with a matchup rating of 261. Yes, that's plus 261. He'll face the Birds' Ubaldo Jimenez and his matchup rating of plus 206. I've had trouble trusting Jimenez this year, but his home PQS log reads a very respectable 5-5-5-4-4-3. All three of his PQS disaster zeros have been on the road. The O's have the ninth best home record in Major League Baseball at 22 and 13. Against teams under 500 like Cleveland, Baltimore ranks 10th with a record of 18 and 12. Cleveland does well on the road at 18 and 15, but struggles against teams at 500 or above like the Orioles, ranking 25th with a record of 21 and 31. Bauer's PQS pattern has been the opposite of Jimenez's. All three of his PQS Disaster Zero starts have been at home. In six road starts, he has five PQS 5s and a PQS 4. It's a bit worrisome that after five consecutive PQS dominant starts, two of Bauer's past three starts have resulted in PQS scores of zero, and he was torched for 13 earned runs on 13 hits and nine walks in six and two-thirds innings. But again, those two starts were at home. If the patterns hold, this should be a matchup where both starters do well. So this weekend, stay miles away from Miley, Andres, and Lorenzen, and stick with Harvey, Jimenez, and Bauer. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. 
Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. I'm up in the rotation this week, and I want to talk about alternatives to the wins category. Last week in Master Notes, I talked about how much I hate the wins category, and I ended by promising that I would look into alternatives to wins. Just one week later, I'm keeping that promise even though it'll put me in an awkward position the next time my wife wants to discuss my earlier promise to clean out the garage. We all know that wins is a category many owners dislike, but nobody ever does anything about it. We just seem to play on, year after year, and we fume when the 2014 pennant winner stumbles into 10 wins from Mike Dunn, because he thought he was drafting Adam Dunn. We just put up with this nagging annoyance, like having a brown recluse spider in your shoe, or being constantly reminded of your promise to clean out the garage. So let's do it. Let's fix the wins category. Let's come up with a better stat to better reflect the importance of starting pitchers. To start, we need some ground rules. I propose that whatever stat replaces the win must meet three qualifications. Like a win, it should be an is or isn't counting stat, not a continuous scale or rate stat. It should be roughly as frequent as fantasy wins, so we all understand the scale. And it should be simple. When this topic comes up in conversation with your friends, it usually starts with one of two thoughts. Either you start discussing alternatives to wins, or you realize you need a better class of friends. Sabermetrically inclined fantasy owners often suggest using BaseballHQ.com's Pure Quality Start, which I'll call PQS, or the Bill James Invention Game Score. It's a persuasive argument. These stats offer extremely comprehensive measures of starting pitcher performance by accounting for innings, runs, strikeouts, walks, and hits. And PQS also penalizes home runs. Both metrics run up against the yes or no issue, however, because they score on scales. PQS uses a scale of 0 to 5. Game score has an indeterminate sliding scale that starts somewhere below 0 and finishes somewhere over 100. It's like grading pitchers in Fahrenheit. There's an easy solution, though. We can make the stat binary by setting a threshold score. Above the threshold, the game counts like a win. Below the threshold, it doesn't. This idea also helps address the frequency issue. For example, in PQS, if we say that a pitcher only gets credit for a PQS5 game, something interesting happens. And you're probably thinking that after three minutes, it's about time something interesting happened. It turns out that in frequency, PQS5s match almost perfectly to wins. In 2014, the Tout Wars Mixed Auction League combined for 1,338 wins. That same year, starters earned 1,335 PQS5s. That's a difference of just three. Similarly, leagues could switch the game score metric from scale to binary by setting a threshold score of 64, which is right around the median. In 2014, a game score of 64 or higher would have captured 1,339 starts. That's within one of the Tout Wars target for wins. In both cases, what happens is that credit for undeserved wins is taken away from bad starters and lucky relievers and given to the starting pitchers who actually pitched well. So, PQS and game score. They fix the wins issue and they can be adjusted to get the frequency right. Problem solved, right? No. PQS and game score are just not simple enough. Perhaps the strongest factor in favor of the win as a fantasy stat is that it is simple. The winning pitcher is always mentioned in game recaps, he's always on the crawl at the bottom of the TV screen, and when announcers read results from the out-of-town scoreboard, they always mention who won. If you're watching or listening to a game, you know if your guy is in line for the win and if he gets it. 
None of this is true of PQS or GameScore. Nobody mentions them on TV or radio recaps. Nobody puts them on the bottom of the screen in the crawl. And calculating them yourself is really hard because they have more moving parts than Mickey Rivers after three cans of Red Bull. Look at PQS. Some components subtract hits or strikeouts from innings, with different totals needed to earn a point. Another PQS component divides strikeouts by walks. And game score is even worse. The starter goes into the game with 50 points. He gains or loses various points for innings, strikeouts, runs, hits, and walks. And at some point, the total is divided by the square root of the open floor space in your garage. Although I might be confused about that last part. So figuring a PQS or game score means getting out a pen and doing a bunch of ciphering on a piece of scrap paper, which inevitably turns out to be the back of your daughter's world history essay. Don't get me wrong, both PQS and game score are excellent metrics for pitcher analysis. I use PQS almost every day, and I find it invaluable for spotting trends among starting pitchers, and for avoiding cleaning out the garage. And so, despite their merit, neither PQS nor game score is the solution for replacing wins as a category. Just imagine yourself at the league meeting proposing this change. You see, guys, you start with 50 points, then you add a point for each out, and an extra point for innings beyond the fourth inning, then you subtract points for runs, walks, and hits. And, oh, by the way, Phil, Dave, you guys have to build garages. Unless your league is made up of the guys from the Big Bang Theory, this proposal is going to get hooted down. You'll never again be taken seriously by your league mates, even when you have another good idea. Believe me about this, I know. After careful consideration, I've decided that we should replace the wins category with some variation of the quality start. There's a long-standing common objection to the quality start as a stat. Three runs in six innings is a 450 ERA, and that's not quality. As with most long-standing common objections, it's not really valid. Only about 8% of starts in 2014 were three-run six-inning minimums, and the overall ERA for all quality starts was 188. That's exactly the same as the ERA for all the wins last year. As a fantasy stat, the quality start easily meets two requirements. It's a binary counting stat, and it's simple. Its components are just innings and runs. They're mentioned on the crawl and in the recaps, and it's really simple to calculate. It's also commonly seen in most online stat packages, including BaseballHQ.com, OnRoto, ESPN.com, and many more. But there's still an issue with the last requirement, that the stat be roughly as frequent as wins. Remember, our target is around 1,350. Last year, there were more than 2,600 quality starts, almost double our target. One possible answer comes from Nolan Ryan, who knew a thing or two about quality pitching. Ryan said a quality start should be three runs or less, as it is now, but in seven innings or more. We'll call this the Ryan Variation, although it sounds a little like the title of a thriller novel by Robert Ludlum and Tom Clancy. And what do you know? Using the Ryan Variation reduces the worst-case single-game ERA to 386, and more importantly, reduces the total in 2014 to just over 1,400 starts, right in line with that 1,350 we were looking for. OnRoto.com has leagues that use the Ryan variation, as well as leagues using eight other quality start variations that don't also use wins. I checked them all, and I found none was closer to that 1,350 requirement than the Ryan variation. So it's settled. The Ryan quality start, at least seven innings, no more than three earned runs, should replace wins as a scoring category in fantasy baseball. Now if you'll excuse me, I have to go find my daughter's English homework. I think I left it in the garage. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com.
You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 26th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 37 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular guest for the Friday edition of Baseball HQ Radio. It's always a blast to talk with Todd Zola, and I hope you like it as much as I do. And I want to thank our other contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our pitcher matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. I had fun with Masternotes this week, and of course I always hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt and be the first to know when a new show is ready for download. Also remember our new email address. It's bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the show, suggestions for future guests, questions for our experts, anything you want to say about Baseball HQ Radio, we'd be glad to hear from you. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in four days with our Tuesday tout, BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.